Hello and welcome to UK Life Abroad. In today's episode, we look at why protests have erupted in Belarus and Russia and their impact on Eastern European politics. This and more on Zakhartodanyu Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukraine. So guys, um, what do you guys know about Belarus? It's a country. Eastern Europe. No, 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 quite a lot. So, um, potatoes is like what most people think of Belarus. And the other trait that I found that if you look up Belarus on Google, it's usually the last dictatorship in Europe. But it's kind of ironic because like you have Putin. But anyway. <laughs> Just, it's only because Putin hasn't lot like been reigning for the last 26 years or so. And then to people in Eastern Europe, like in Ukraine and former Soviet countries, Belarus comes up the image of tractors, heavy machinery, and um, like Soviet quality goods being made today. But so that makes like their like Belarusian goods affordable for like average people in the in Eastern Europe. And so you can still see their products on sale in major department stores. And probably the other thing that uh, Belarus is known for is Mr. Lukashenko, what a great man. So, what was one of those like myths where like if you bathe in like the pond near his house, like you like get eternal strength or whatever? It's like some myth uh, about it that. It seems about right for Who something. Who believes that? Yeah, there's like a whole like tourist attraction in his village about him and only him. There's like, <laughs> no, like every, there's nothing else in the village except for like the museum about him. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so that brings us to Alexander Lukashenko, Belarus's first and only president so far. So, he was born on August 30th, 1954 in the town of Kopis in Vitebitska Oblast in eastern Belarus. A fun fact about Lukashenko is that no one actually knows who his father is and so his surname comes from his mother's side of the family. And then the other fun fact about Lukashenko that I found when I was researching him was that his maternal grandfather was born in Sumska Oblast in northern Ukraine. Anyway, so um, as every good um, Soviet citizen, Lukashenko did his army service. But unlike the majority of people, he served in the political department of his unit. So that's basically like a political commissar from World War II. So his job was to ensure that his, uh, the soldiers in his unit stayed good, loyal communists and knew that the Soviet Faithful Union... Faithful to the regime. Yeah, that the Soviet Union was, you know, the correct side. And after that, he then led the uh, Komsomol unit. So Komsomol is like the communist youth league of the Soviet Union. So sort of like scouts, but with a bit more Leninist economics thrown in there. It's great. Mama and Tata had to do it because they were born in Ukraine. Oh, so bad. Yeah. Um, and then after that, he became the director of a collective farm. So, you know, typical party man, you know, growing up the ranks. <laughs> What's a collective farm? So, a collective farm is like, so instead of working as your own, on your own farm, in a sense, it's more like... The government, the government forcibly the amalgamated all the private farms under one, like, management, which is owned by the state. It's sort of what happened in Ukraine with Holodomor. And That's with kind Mao, of what in his, like, great leap forward. Yeah. So, it's, it's to make a industrial farm instead of like a personal farm for yourself with like a bit extra for someone else yeah and they put like quotas in of how much the farm has to make and stuff like that yeah but it's all state run at this point so there's like no private business or like ownership of the land 
So, yeah, he served in that role up until 1991 when Belarus declared its independence. And in 93, he was elected to the Supreme Soviet of Belarus, its parliament, where he became known as a fierce anti-corruption advocate. And during his time as a member of parliament, he even managed to force the then prime minister of Belarus to resign on trumped up charges. I think you know a little bit more about that, Andre. Yeah, so Lukashenko pretty much said that he took two boxes of nails for his dacha, like a summer home in Belarus, and a bunch of other corruption uh, like allegations as well. And he pretty much forced him to step down so that Lukashenko could pretty much run and, in a sense, win because he was playing as the anti-corruption uh, political figure, just like most other like Soviet countries have done, like political candidates have done, where they're against the current regime because of all these corruption scandals. So that brings us to 1994, and Belarus adopted its first constitution, which paved the way for the presidential elections to take place. And what's interesting about this constitution is that it created a very powerful presidency, like in America, and the logic behind that was that it was to prevent any Russian unity movements from taking over Belarus and forcing a union between the two countries. So the post of the presidency was meant to protect the sovereignty and independence of Belarus and allow it to go its own way. And so Lukashenko goes into that first election and he won the first round with 45.1% of the vote and then won the subsequent runoff round with 80.1% of the vote. And since then, he's run Belarus with an iron fist and those elections in 1995 are the only free and fair elections recognized by the West in Belarus. So after assuming the presidency, Lukashenko does what every tyrant does, is he holds a referendum to increase his powers. And along with that, he also changes the state symbols of Belarus. So the, like, the original flag of Belarus was the white, red, white flag, along with the... Uh, along with the... Pohonia, a mounted knight, a symbol of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, is what it is. Yes, and he changed that to Belarus's current symbol. So he basically reintroduced the Soviet flag minus the hammer and sickle with some adjustments to make it look more pretty. And he brought back the Soviet coat of arms for Belarus. And Belarus has kind of lived in this weird neo-Soviet kind of environment since his presidency. The main reason for that was that he kind of campaigned for the fact that the soviet union was stable in a sense back then and with the whole collapse of the soviet union there was a collapse of the economy and stuff and so he came in saying i'll bring back the good old days where we had um stability and that's kind of one of the reasons why he brought back all the soviet symbols because it brought like a reminder of the like the stability and brought in like the economy that the soviet union used to have in a sense so he's pretty much prolonged the Soviet Union. In Belarus. In Belarus. Um, and then the other like side note that's quite I found quite interesting is that Belarus still has a government in exile from their original proclamation of independence after World War I. And to this day, they do not recognize Lukashenko and his government as the legitimate leaders of Belarus, which is interesting because in like the Ukrainian perspective, as soon as Ukraine declared independence and Kravchuk was elected president, Ukraine's government in exile came to Ukraine and officially handed over its powers to the new Ukrainian government. Where is the Belarusian government in exile? Where is it based? 
Well, I know that their president is, um, well, her residency is in Canada, so I'm assuming it's from there. But they've got representatives from all the Belarusian diasporas. Like, there's the UK one, there's the Lithuanian one, Polish ones. They're all, like, represented in there. Yes, they've got some sort of, uh, like, communication with other leaders. Right. So, this takes us to uh, this year. So, Belarus was meant to have its, well, it did have its election on the 9th of August. And this was Lukashenko's sixth time or was to vote him in for his uh, sixth term in office, which is pretty insane. Solid um, democracy right there. Yeah, I know, right? So, it was actually um, a pretty, I'd say, popular election. It was 84% voter turnout, which, like, uh, I guess from an Australian perspective, that's kind of, we don't really talk about voter turnout here. Because um, we pretty much almost have 100 every time because it's the whole... It's yeah, yeah, right. So um, then, It's pretty good because Ukraine gets about 60, 70% turnout yeah. at its elections. Right, so they had the, uh, 84% turnout and it was obviously Lukashenko uh, running and the favoured candidate or the person that was running against him that was deemed most popular was uh, Svetlana Tikhonovska. And <clears throat> this is where it gets kind of interesting because when they were um, starting or when they were doing polling for the election, she was, you know, favoured to win. And in the voting or the polling places where the ballot counting was actually done properly and, you know, all of these uh, protocols were actually observed, she was winning like 70% of the votes in these places. So, this is where all the controversy came out because um, he won – the official tally is that he got 80.1% of the vote. Oh, and so, she- just like in his first election. <laughs> Mucky. And then she got 10.12% of the vote. So, as a popular vote, he gets 4 million – roughly 4 million, 4.5 million votes and she only gets, you know, 500,000 roughly, close to 600,000. So, this is when people started going, you know, Pretty crazy because for an election that people assumed was going to, you know, be so close and, you know, even maybe even a landslide against him, he ends up pulling off this massive, you know, upset against her with, you know, 80% of the vote. And um, he's the glorious leader. Of course, he's going to win. <laughs> yeah. So, then that's when things, you know, went the way that they did. So, um, Andre, why was she so popular? So, yeah, first off, uh, just like a little bit of background behind her, um, she initially wasn't running for president, but her partner was her husband, was running for president, uh, Serhii Tikhanovsky. And he was soon arrested because of his activism against Lukashenko. And I believe one of his like popular sayings was that he was a cockroach, that we need to stomp out the cockroach. Jeez. Yeah, so he was an active YouTuber and a blogger. And because of this, he had a lot of influence over the Belarusian people. And so, he, when he could, he tried to register for the presidency, but he was ultimately rejected. And then he was jailed for his activism against Lukashenko and the government. But obviously, it wasn't for those charges, trumped up charges, false acu- like being falsely accused of other crimes. So, he was put out of the race and the same thing happened to other candidates as well. So, in comes Svetlana, his partner, and she ends up running for presidency. So, a little bit about her. She's actually an English teacher at school and she was an interpreter as well. Now, would you say that the reason he let her run is because she looked like the easy opponent compared to everyone else? Well, yeah. He actually assumed that he, like, she won't win because she's a female. And he kind of assumed that because she's a female, she doesn't know what she's doing and... She's, like, never no, been into politics before. Yeah, she's never done politics before. Who's going to vote for her at all? This is the typical Lukashenko idea of why 
he's going to win against her. And that's why he let her register for the election. And during her campaign, she um, she only did it out of the love for freeing her husband out of prison, really, and to bring a, some sort of democracy to Belarus, right? And so, one of her her campaigns for the election and during her presidency, if she was to be elected, was to free all political prisoners in Belarus, to introduce democratic reforms to the country, and move away from the Union Treaty with Russia. So, this Union Treaty was the unification between Belarus and Russia, sort of to make... A union state. A union state, sort of like the Soviet Union again, where it was, in a sense, also like the European Union, where it's all like one passport, one currency, one like banking system, pretty much to make it all one country. Yeah, but this treaty was signed in the early, like mid-90s when Lukashenko first came to power. And I think the only reason he signed was because President Yeltsin... Was a weak political figure. Was in a his weak mind. political figure and dying, and so he assumed that he would then be chosen as leader of this union state, and he would continue to rule. But when Putin came to power, I think Lukashenko saw that he couldn't, like he wouldn't win in that power struggle. So he's been trying to avoid merging with Russia ever since. Yeah. So her, her other plan was that she was only going to run for six months before calling for another election, and in between. And in that six months, she pledged to set a referendum to return the original draft of the 1994 Belarusian Constitution, which is reinstating the two limit terms for president, reinstating the old emblems and symbols of Belarus, and trying to reform the country back into a more democratic country. And so when this was all done, she'd set up a free election and a fair election so that actual political figures could uh, continue ruling the country instead of, uh, like as she says herself, an inexperienced political figure. <laughs> Unlike uh, Zelensky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is what the kind of like the whole protest started about because like everyone didn't want to live under Bel- uh, Lukashenko anymore and wanted to live in a more democratic country. And she represented this whole image of Belarus becoming democratic unintentionally. Though. Unintentionally, though, because. Um, there were other candidates similar views as her, but I think she stood out the most because of her activism. Kind of actually reminds me of Zelensky, how even though it's someone who hasn't been in politics, it's like the country is desperate for some kind of change. And so people will just go to a person who they believe has a strong message. Actually, it can even be linked to Trump. You know, people believed he had a strong message. And so, yeah, it's, you're seeing that a lot now. And, you know, even though she was only going to run for six months and she had this goal of, I just want to free my husband. So, she's actually started a movement to actually make Belarus free. Yeah, and I think that takes us to the election and how these glorious results that Lukashenko managed to pull off a comeback election. Right. So, as I mentioned before, um, he won 80% of the vote, roughly. Um, And even though she was popular, she won 10% of the vote. So, um, what happened? That... (laughs) This isn't like some polling that was just off. I mean, this is a massive... It's not how, like, the Hillary lost. Yeah, there's, there's definitely something going on. So, um, when you look into it, it's, it's just amazing. Okay, so, <laughs> so this all started. There was a spokesman from the um, German Foreign Ministry, and he stated that there were numerous indications of fraud in the Belarus presidential election. 
and that minimum standards were not adhered to, even the bare minimum standards. So, I'll talk a little bit about the process. So, what's supposed to happen is that once the votes have been calculated, they the different polling stations, they do a protocol. And in this protocol, they um, tally up the results and they actually write this protocol out with, you know, how many votes were given to each candidate. And they are actually required by law that they have to post this um, for the public to see outside of the um, polling place. So, it's kind of like here, like on election night, like each polling center like declares like the results from it and they send it to like the central election commission yes and no but this is actually the physical thing so and that's what i'll get to later um people can walk past the polling place and see exactly in what well, as they're counting no once it's done oh. they put it up so when the election results and this is kind of what led to it being deemed fraud people were walking past and taking photos of these protocols on the windows and there was no correlation between what those protocols were saying and the numbers that were being sent to the actual, um, you know, the main sensor for the electoral um, counting. So that's what people were like saying, oh, this is ridiculous because a lot of the um, a lot of the places did do it, which is where, especially in Minsk, where uh, a lot of polling places voted heavily for Svetlana. So people were taking photos, as I mentioned, and that was one way that people saw that there was fraud because he was either just neck and neck with her or she was beating him by like double in some of these places it was pretty much like swapped like she actually had 80 percent in some places and he had i think uh around 16 to 17 percent yeah i saw one of them he had like 500 and she got like over 2000 yeah so, so pretty drastic changes. yeah it was pretty drastic so yeah as i mentioned it's a requirement that they have to post these things up now it's not all the places did post it up so, when there was talk that it was, you know, electoral fraud, people were going back to these polling places and asking, we want to see your protocols. And the response was, oh, you know, the Central Election Commission stated, oh, we can't, you know, put the protocols up a second time. And then when the pressure got even more, they said that they couldn't hand them out because they had actually been handed over to the regional committees and those committees had already been disbanded. So, there is now no record of these protocols. People don't know where they are. And the photo evidence that people took on their phones, luckily enough, is pretty much the only evidence at this point. So, this then takes us to what was happening when the polling was actually taking place because... People were reporting that marked ballots were being sent out and luckily enough, people took photos of this. So, um, there was a, uh, someone took a photo of their ballot paper and there is a dot right next to in the box for one of the candidates and that dot makes that uh, ballot paper invalid. Oh, so you're saying that if there's a mark in the box and, they put, and then they put a tick in another candidate's box... It's invalid because they've technically voted for two candidates. Yes, they've marked for two candidates and that makes it invalid. So, in places that she was polling higher in, it's more likely that they've put, oh, let's put a dot here, more invalid votes, meaning those those votes essentially just don't even count. So... That's pretty crazy though, that like one tiny dot, because like say if there was a printing error and yeah. like it's smudged. Yeah. Like that mess it up, Jesus. No, well, they would have like checked all the ballots when they printed out to make sure that there was nothing wrong with them. What yeah, but think? this is like Belarus where they've pretty much like, this is Lukashenko. He's already predicted what he's going to get like six months before the elections even happen. So, he's already guessed, oh, I'm going to get 80%. Oh, she's going to get a couple percent here, over there as well. <laughs> this guy's going to get a couple percent anyway. Yeah, pretty much. So, there was a quote by one woman and she said that she felt as though her freedom of choice was actually being taken away from her because she could automatically see that her vote wasn't going to count. 
And even though that happened, afterwards, people were asking, you know, okay, where are the ballot papers? What's happened to the ballot papers? And there's actually a rule in Belarus that they have to hold all of their ballot papers for six months after an election for obvious reasons, for transparency, and so you can do a recount. Except a human rights group that's uh, based in the city of Brest, or Brest, they found a large stack of voting papers that had actually been partially burnt. So, automatic, well, already, these bur- uh, ballot papers are, you know, being destroyed. I know, like, um, I saw, like, photos on social media of, like, the electoral commissioners, like, climbing out, like, the back window of polling places. Yeah, yeah bags like, full of paper. Which, like, people assume must have been, like, pro-opposition, like, votes. Like, they're trying to get them out of the polling station. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, they're doing this in broad daylight. Like, how blatant can you be? Yeah, and, like, there's full recordings. And then their official excuse was, oh, the door was locking, so we couldn't get out. We had to climb out a window. It's like, totally, like, someone locked <laughs> no, the door. No, that's totally legit, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I think it's really essential that, you know, people are actually taking the initiative to actually take photos. And because that's all we have right now, but like you can find photos of the burnt ballots, you can find photos of the marked ballot papers. I mean, there's no denying that that happened. So this is clear electoral fraud. It's it's pretty obvious, but there was actually a quote by one of the people from this human rights group. And I thought this was very interesting given all the protests that happened. He said, now we are busy helping the victims of the beating by riot police and we do not trust the law enforcement agencies because we believe that they will cover each other. So let's wait and then we will submit applications to the police department, investigative committee and the prosecutor's office. So that I thought was really interesting because they are being held off from actually putting in any of these applications to start investigations because they are too busy helping people who have been beaten by the police. So, that really benefits Lukashenko right now because, um, yeah, you know, the more people he beats, that's more time he's buying and more time he can get away with whatever he's done. And I think this brings us to the, like, actual protests that are happening right now. Yeah, so, like, that very night, uh, protests started not just in Minsk, but across all of Belarus. Which was a first in Belarus. Usually protests are confined to Minsk. But it's happening or like in other large cities. Yeah, but, but it's happening in every city now. Yeah, it's not just uh, like pro-opposition cities or like districts. It's every single city with thousands of people coming out just to protest against these uh, illegal elections. The stolen election. Yeah, the stolen election. Yep. Um, and another interesting thing was that when we're looking at international observers, which are, you know, governments or government-led organizations that basically look out for the validity of um, elections around the world. And the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe reported that it would not monitor the 2020 election in Belarus. And interestingly, they haven't actually deemed an election fair in Belarus since 1995. So, yeah, automatically you can already see that they had no confidence that this was going to be a legitimate election. And the main independent observers of the election were Russia and Azerbaijan. There are yeah, a bunch of democracy. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? There are a bunch of other smaller countries in there which uh, I couldn't find. But yeah, they were the two main ones. So yeah, you can see who's uh, backing this election up. So after the election and the first couple of nights of rioting, uh, Svetlana Tekhanovska fled Belarus. And um, she's now in Lithuania with her kids. And... Before she could flee Belarus, the authorities forced her to film a video, um, not denouncing the protesters, but telling them to go back to work 
and not to be protesting against the government because follow like follow the law, um, like stuff like that, just to follow the law. Submit. Yeah, pretty much. But as soon as she was like in Lithuania, she then recorded another video telling basically what she was forced to say was like a lie, that those weren't her true words. And so now she's created this committee and it's called, Andre, I believe, uh, the Coordination Council for the Transfer of Power in Belarus. And so what their, their whole aim is for the elections to be held again, freely and fairly, and for all political prisoners to be released and... Originally, the strikes were just confined to the opposition, but now it's become like a national awakening in Belarus. And Minsk last Sunday held its largest ever rallies. Like the streets were packed. Everyone's flying the real Belarusian flag, the white, red, white one. Like it's crazy like to see this kind of awakening in a country that before that it was considered more tame than Russia. Like Russia expected protests after elections, but Belarus was always seen as the one where no revolt could ever happen and now all of a sudden you have the whole country rising up yeah i remember we were talking about belarus recently and talking about how they kind of like i won't say rolled over but they're kind of not really standing up to things that have happened in their country and i guess yeah proved us wrong (laughs) (laughs) and um, a lot of people in ukraine have kind of tried to link it to like maidan but um in certain ways it is like maidan in ukraine but in other factors it's quite different still yeah so you have people that are saying that you know ukraine should definitely support belarus because you know they're such close neighbors they have a common history uh, you know all that sort of stuff and and people are saying that it's very similar to the protests in maidan from 2014 but um you know if you look at the protests in belarus there are some really marked differences so the maidan protests in ukraine were very pro-democracy pro-european union they had uh, clear, the protesters had clear goals. They wanted to um, move to the European Union, organize trade deals, you know, m- make themselves better that way. But with Belarus, uh, the the protests have only really been about the elections. They don't have any political slant. They just they just want free elections. They want the freedom of democracy. They want to be able to choose their own democratic leader. And the fact that they're still not able to to do that for obvious uh, for various reasons you know they don't have a, a proper leader for their opposition uh, they don't have a central area to protest in like they did in Maidan in Ukraine has really you know in some ways hindered these these goals or this this opportunity to create democracy in Belarus yeah because of like there's there's no one to communicate between what the protesters want or like can represent them to the government to the government but in other ways um they can't be quashed easily in a sense because there's no can, leadership yeah, you can't take away a leader that's not there and because they're all over the city you can't like corner them or surround them and just capture everyone everyone's running everywhere everyone's in parks in other squares as well walking down the street and the police have pretty much just been spread thin because they're everywhere and didn't you say they were like fighting against the police like you know other protesters would run away but they would just like yeah so at the start when the police were being at their most brutal trying to suppress it in like the first couple of nights like the police would charge at the protesters and the protesters would just charge back and then when the cops could see that the people weren't frightened anymore like they'd start running and if any cop like any police officer was like isolated the protesters would then like try and avenge 
all the wrongs that have been done against them on him. But I think it brings back to an important point that Ukraine, yes, there is differences to Maidan. Like it's like probably the closest would be 2004 when Ukraine was aiming for free elections in a way. But um, Ukraine needs to support this like this anyway because a democratic Belarus is a lot better than a Russian stooge Belarus. And it also gives Russia another area to be worried about because now it's even closer to like NATO or the European Union because that's the whole point of Russia's foreign policy is just to have a barrier between West and East, between Moscow and the European Union or NATO and just democracy itself, really. And so far, the signs seem to be that Russia isn't going to go for a hard military intervention in Belarus so far. And it looks like they're going to tack towards what they did in Armenia. And like Armenia had the same thing. They had like anti-government protesters. And instead of Russia coming in to prop up the former regime, they let the people topple the government, knowing that the leaders of the opposition wouldn't move that far from Russia. So Armenia is still a close ally of Russia. They just have a now a democratically elected leader. I wonder how Putin's actually, or what Putin's feeling about all of this, because I feel like Belarus was probably a country that he felt was like under his wing, and now he's realized like, oh, this one actually might slip away. So I know you mentioned like it might be like Armenia, but uh, if the people there are now like, from what I can see, flying the original flags and stuff like that, you can kind of see there's a sense of, they don't like the country as it is and they want to revert back to what they had before. I think what Russia's most worried about is something similar happening like it did in Ukraine. But I mean, like that's, And it's spreading to Russia. Yeah. And um, it's more the fact that it's so like across the nation really. And, but I think he's not too worried about like This is like the worst case scenario for them. But at the moment you can see that there isn't a pro- uh west uh protest really because there's no eu flags everywhere there's no chanting for moving to the west right it's more just chanting for a change of government and so russia is only just trying to maintain a like a steady goal for what they want in belarus really And I think that kind of brings us to our next story, which is in Eastern Russia, there are anti-government protests happening as well. And these have been going on for over a month now. Yeah, so Russia's not exempt from protests as well. The region of Khabarovsk, uh, which is on the eastern border, the southeastern border with China, is actually the site of some pretty heavy protests at the moment as well, which centre around the arrest of Sergei Furgal, the region's popular governor. Uh, So he was arrested by federal law enforcement in early July on charges related to multiple murders back in 2004 and 2005 before he became governor. And many people believe that the charges levelled against him and his replacement are politically motivated because Furgal defeated a candidate from Putin's party, United Russia, in 2018. I think it's important to highlight here that uh, Khabarovsk is the only region in Russia that isn't ruled by Putin's United Russia party. Isn't it? Pretty sure if you look on the electoral like regions map of Russia, it's the only one that's not United Russia or like Putin's like allied parties. But in a sense, his uh, the the party that Fur- uh, Furgal is part of is pretty much controlled by United Russia. It's just a way to present an opposition to yeah. 
Russia's government and it's kind of like a way to make it look democratic, but it's still controlled by Putin and he still has his like plans that are still executed by this, uh, by them. But it's, there's still like a slight distance between the two because they're still in opposition. Well, yeah, like I read an article that said that all of the parties in Russia sort of work in tandem with each other. Like there's an unspoken agreement that they fit into the puzzle of the um, the vision that Putin has. But um, I think part of the reason why Furgal was targeted was because he was starting to move away from that. My mistake, there's a few regions in Russia that aren't controlled by United Russia, Putin's party, but you can count how many are controlled by the opposition in quotation marks on to on your hands like on your fingers bill it's less like than that's the map that's like one hand that you can count on <laughs> <laughs> like there's a few independents in there but the rest like it's basically blue f- with putin's body yeah so one of like the main reasons why furgal has been pretty much escorted out of the region was because he was actually making progress within the oblast to make it a better living city for it actually to be worthwhile to go moved to but like he got rid of officials that weren't imported he removed organizations that were just taking up money he even lowered his own salary and other ministers salary within the oblast to kind of reduce the amount of money that was being stolen and so once they captured him and took him to moscow for an unfair trial they've replaced him with some guy in moscow from the same party though and the main um the main view that a lot of people have about people coming from Moscow to these far-off regions, far-off regions in Siberia, is that they only come here, do nothing at all, make no attempt to improve the city, and they just rack up money before being kicked out back and moving back to Moscow. Yeah, and so the fact that um, Furgal was trying to make changes made him very popular. And one independent news outlet was the first to publish secret recordings of Furgal's dressing down when a Russian government official worried that uh, Furgal's rating was going up while Putin's was falling. And uh, Furgal's supporters in Khabarovsk wonder whether he was arrested on these trumped-up charges, which you know even Putin's opponents are saying are... You know, our sham and um, and which Furgal himself denies, because he was becoming more popular than Putin, and you know, you can never let that happen. So these protests represent the biggest regional challenge to Putin's twenty-year rule, uh, cementing Khabarov's status as a problematic region for Putin. Like the fact that um, it was the only region where his United Russia Party lost its dominance or that it had one of the lowest voter turnouts in the recent Russian constitutional referendum. So the national average, I think, was like 68% voter turnout and Khabarovsk only had 44%. So, you know, Khabarovsk... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so is turning out to be like a really problematic region for Putin. And, um, you know, they're not only protesting, obviously, what's happened with Furgal, but, you know, underlying these protests is outrage against declining real wages, stagnant living standards, poor services... Um, and the fact that, you know, pro-government officials, Putin supporters and other oligarchs who were close to him have been, you know, rolling in riches while the rest of the region or the rest of the country is sort of declining. Uh, another thing that's really, you know, getting people up in arms is, like you said, Andre, uh Furgal's replacement being another, another person from the same party but who is, you know, uh, pro-Putin or who is... 
closer in line with Putin's ideals, really. I think they miscalculated because they thought, oh, yeah, if we replace him from someone from the same party, it'll be fine. But I think, like, the like Furgal had its, his own base of popularity in the area, and you can't just remove that without expecting some kind of backlash, especially if you're cherry-picking someone from Moscow onto the other side of the country. It'd be like the same here in Australia. Like, if, you know... They like you could somehow replace the premier of a state with someone else. Like everyone would be up in arms. And like, what's even worse is local journalists and um, news sources. They've been uh, they've been told that they're not allowed to post anything, uh, uh, like anything untoward about it, because you know they could lose their jobs. And so they're really cracking down on free media as well. So they you know can't have free democracy. They can't have a person in power that they trust. But they can't also have you know, the right to say or to, to know the truth. So it really sucks. Yeah, and one thing to mention is that Serhi Fugal, Fugal is from the nearby oblast, uh, Amur Oblast. And so he's not from uh, Western Russia or from Moscow, St. Petersburg. He's actually from the region and he understands what people have lived through, understands what kind of struggles they live on a day-to-day basis. Well, this guy that's replaced him from the same party He's from Moscow. He has no idea what it's like living there. He's like probably doesn't even care what the living standard is there. He's just there to be a replacement in a sense. And even uh, Furgal's own um, head party, uh, the head of the party, didn't even stand in support of Furgal being arrested. He quietly, I think he... He, he didn't stand in support. I think he either stood by and let it happen or only did like a mere reaction to it. Yeah. Anyway, I think this brings us to why we're kind of talking about Khabarovsk and, you know, why it's important. Um, and that's because historically, this has been a very like Ukrainian heavily populated region of Russia. Yeah. So when Russia took over this region uh, with very few people and so... In 1882, Russia offered free transportation for settlers from Ukraine to move to this free land that was being offered to them. And so in 1897, the population had increased massively to 310,000 settlers. And within only just a couple more years, a railroad was set up and more settlers were coming in now. So uh, in 1926, where I think it was the, the height of Ukrainian population across all of Russia... In Khabarovsk, there was roughly 15 to 30% Ukrainians living there. So they, they were a massive portion of the population living there. So they had their own schools, they had their own styling housing, they had their own like communities and groups that they would come together. And what's cool is that during the whole like period of the Russian Revolution and Ukraine's war for independence, this whole area in eastern Russia declared its independence as green Ukraine or, or Zelani Klen, and their goal was to be united with Ukraine. So if, that had, if only that had worked out, we could have had a Pacific <laughs> coast. <laughs> yeah, they pretty much said that once Ukraine in Europe was uh, free, they would uh, say that we are part of Ukraine. Ukraine uh, pretty much spans from one side of Russia to the other. <laughs> and yeah, so they... They tried to set this up, but because the Ukrainian state in Europe couldn't handle all the different fronts they were fighting on, um, not much support was sent their way. And so they kind of had to rely on themselves and 
they were eventually overrun by the Russians, the Japanese, and everyone else that was involved in the Russian Civil War. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a little interesting side note of Ukrainian history. In the news this week, Ukraine considers purchasing Super Tukhanos training aircraft from Brazil to replace its current batch of aircraft which were produced by Czechoslovakia in the 1960s. It is also looking to replace its current set of Soviet aircraft with more modern fourth-generation fighters. On August 19, prominent Ukrainian academic and president of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine, Boris Paton, died at the age of 101. Paton was the first person to be awarded the title Hero of Ukraine, Ukraine's highest award. He is most famous for his research into electro-welding and welding in space. An Australian Labor candidate in the ACT has been criticised for having a hammer and sickle on display in their campaign office. The UK training program Orbital has now trained over 18,000 Ukrainian service people. Building on this success, the UK, along with Sweden, Canada and Denmark, will now create a new program to train Ukraine's Navy. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Report content.